The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination by Lorraine Bettner Chapter 1, Page 1, Introduction The purpose of this book is not to set forth a new system of theological thought, but to give a restatement to that great system which is known as the Reformed Faith or Calvinism, and to show that this is beyond all doubt the teaching of the Bible and of reason. The doctrine of predestination receives comparatively little attention in our day, and it is very imperfectly understood even by those who are supposed to hold it most loyally. It is a doctrine, however, which is contained in the creeds of most evangelical churches, and which has had a remarkable influence both in church and state. The official standards of the various branches of the Presbyterian and Reformed churches in Europe and America are thoroughly Calvinistic. The Baptist and Congregational churches, although they have no formulated creeds, have in the main been Calvinistic, if we may judge from the writings and teachings of their representative theologians. The great Free Church of Holland and almost all the churches of Scotland are Calvinistic. The established Church of England and her daughter, the Episcopal Church of America, have a Calvinistic creed in the 39 Articles. The Whitefield Methodists in Wales to this day bear the name of Calvinistic Methodists. Among the past and present advocates of this doctrine are to be found some of the world's greatest and wisest men. It was taught not only by Calvin, but by Luther, Zwingli, Melanchthon, although Melanchthon later retreated toward the semi-Pelagian position, by Bullinger, Bucher, and all of the outstanding leaders in the Reformation. While differing on some other points, they agreed on this doctrine of predestination and taught it with emphasis. Luther's chief work, The Bondage of the Will, shows that he went into the doctrine as hardly as did Calvin himself. He even asserted it with more warmth and proceeded to much harsher lengths in defending it than Calvin ever did. In the Lutheran Church today, as judged by the formula of Concord, holds the doctrine of predestination in a modified form. The Puritans in England and those who early settled in America, as well as the Covenanters in Scotland and the Huguenots in France, were thoroughgoing Calvinists. And it is little credit to historians in general that this fact has been so largely passed over in silence. This faith was for a time held by the Roman Catholic Church, and at no time has that church ever openly repudiated it. Augustine's doctrine of predestination set against him all the half-hearted elements in the church and arrayed him against every man who belittled the sovereignty of God. He overcame them, and the doctrine of predestination entered the belief of the universal church. The great majority of the creeds of historic Christendom have set forth the doctrines of election, predestination, and final perseverance, as will readily be seen by anyone who will make even a cursory study of the subject. On the other hand, Arminianism existed for centuries only as a heresy on the outskirts of true religion, and in fact it was not championed by an organized Christian church until the year 1784, at which time it was incorporated into the system of doctrine of the Methodist Church in England. The great theologians of history, Augustine, Wycliffe, 
Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Sanchez, Owen, Whitfield, Top Lady, and in more recent times, Hodge, Dabney, Cunningham, Smith, Shedd, Warfield, and Kuiper held this doctrine and taught it with force that they have been the lights and ornaments of the highest type of Christianity will be admitted by practically all Protestants. Furthermore, their works on this great subject have never been answered. Then too, when we stop to consider that among non-Christian religions, Mohammedanism has so many millions who believe in some kind of predestination, that the doctrine of fatalism has been held in some form or other in several heathen countries, and that the mechanistic and deterministic philosophies have exerted such great influences in England, Germany, and America, we see that this doctrine is at least worthy of careful study. From the time of the Reformation up until about a hundred years ago, these doctrines were boldly set forth by the great majority of the ministers and teachers in the Protestant churches. But today we find far the greater majority holding the teaching of other systems. It is only rarely that we now come across those who can be called Calvinists without reserve. We may quite appropriately apply to our own churches the words of Top Lady in regard to the Church of England. Time has been when the Calvinistic doctrines were considered and defended as the palladium of our established church by her bishops and clergy, by the universities and the whole body of the laity. It was during the reigns of Edward VI, Queen Elizabeth, James I, and the greater part of Charles I, as difficult to meet with a clergyman who did not preach the doctrines of the Church of England, as it is now to find one who does. We have generally forsaken the principles of the Reformation, and Ichabod, or the glory is departed, has been written on most of our pulpits and church doors ever since. The tendency in our enlightened age is to look upon Calvinism as a worn-out, obsolete creed. At the beginning of his splendid article on the Reformed faith in the modern world, Professor F. E. Hamilton says, It seems to be tacitly assumed by a large number of people in the Presbyterian Church today that Calvinism has been outgrown in religious circles. In fact, the average church member or even minister of the gospel is inclined to look upon a person who declares that he believes in predestination with a glance of amused tolerance. It seems incredible to them that there should exist some in intellectual curiosity as a real Calvinist in an age of enlightenment like the present. As for seriously examining the arguments for Calvinism, the idea never enters their heads. It is deemed as out of date as the Inquisition or the idea of a flat world and is looked upon as one of the fantastic schemes of thought that men held before the age of modern science. Because of this present day attitude towards Calvinism and because of the general lack of information concerning these doctrines, we regard the subject of this book as one of great importance. It was Calvin who wrought out the system of theological thought with such logical clearness and emphasis that it has ever since borne his name. He did not, of course, originate the system, 
but only set forth what appeared to him to shine forth so clearly from the pages of Holy Scripture. Augustine had taught the essentials of the system a thousand years before Calvin was born, and the whole body of the leaders of the Reformation movement taught the same. But it was given to Calvin with his deep knowledge of Scripture, his keen intellect, and systematizing genius to set forth and defend these truths more clearly and ably than had ever been done before. We call this system the doctrine of Calvinism and accept the term Calvinist as our badge of honor, yet names are mere conveniencies. We might say Warburton quite appropriately and with equally as much reason as gravitation, Newtonism, because the principles of gravitation were first clearly demonstrated by the great philosopher Newton. Men had been fully conversant with the facts of gravitation for long ages before Newton was born. These facts had indeed been visible from the first days of creation, inasmuch as gravitation was one of the laws which God ordained for the governing of the universe. But the principles of gravitation were not fully known, and the far-reaching effects of its power and influence were not understood until they were discovered by Sir Isaac Newton. So too was it with what men call Calvinism. The inherent principles of it had been in existence for long ages before Calvin was born. They had indeed been visible as patent factors on the world history from the time of man's creation. But inasmuch as it was Calvin who first formulated these principles into a more or less complete system, that system or creed, if you will, and likewise those principles which are embodied in it, came to bear his name. We may add further that the names Calvinist, Lutheran, Puritan, Pilgrim, Methodist, Baptist, and even the name Christian were originally nicknames, but the usage has established their validity and their meaning is well understood. The quality which gave such force to Calvin's teaching was his close adherence to the Bible as an inspired and authoritative book. He has been referred to as preeminently the Bible theologian of his age. Where the Bible led, there he went. Where it failed him, there he stopped short. This refusal to go beyond what is written, coupled with a ready acceptance of what the Bible did teach, gave an air of finality and positiveness to his declarations, which made them offensive to his critics. Because of his keen insight and power of logical development, he has often been referred to as merely a speculative theologian. That he was a speculative genius of the first order is, of course, not to be denied. And in the cognancy of his logical analysis, he possesses a weapon which made him terrible to his enemies. But it was not on these gifts that he depended primarily when forming and developing his theological system. Calvin's active and powerful intellect led him to sound the depths of every subject which he touched. In his investigations about God and the plan of redemption, he went very far, penetrating into mysteries concerning which the average man seldom if ever dreams. He brought to light a side of scripture which had as yet been very much in the shade and stressed those deep truths which in the ages preceding the Reformation 
had comparatively escaped notice in the church. He brought to light the forgotten doctrines of the Apostle Paul and fastened them in their full and complete sense upon one great branch of the Christian church. This doctrine of predestination has perhaps raised a greater storm of opposition and has doubtless been more misrepresented and caricatured than any other doctrine in the scriptures. To mention it before some, says Warburton, is like shaking the proverbial red flag before an enraged bull. It arouses the fiercest passions of their nature and brings forth a torrent of abuse and calumny. But because men have fought against it, or because they hate it, or perhaps misunderstand it, is no reasonable or logical cause why we should turn the doctrine adrift or cast it behind our backs. The real question, the all-important question, is not how do men receive it, but is it true? One reason why many people, even supposedly educated people, are so quick to reject the doctrine of predestination is because of pure ignorance of what the doctrine really is and of what the Bible teaches in regard to it. This ignorance is not at all surprising when one considers the almost complete lack of Bible training in our day. A careful study of the Bible would convince many people that it is a very different book than they assume it to be. The tremendous influence which this doctrine has exerted in the history of Europe and America should at least entitle it to a respectful hearing. Furthermore, we submit that according to all the laws of reason and logic, a person has no right to deny the truth of a doctrine without first having studied in an unprejudiced manner the evidence on both sides. This is a doctrine which deals with some of the most profound truths revealed in Scripture, and it will abundantly repay careful study on the part of Christian people. If any are disposed to reject it without first making a careful study of its claims, let them not forget that it has commanded the firm belief of multitudes of the wisest and best men that have ever lived, and that there must, therefore, be strong reasons in favor of its truth. Perhaps a few words of caution should be given here to the effect that while the doctrine of predestination is a great and blessed scripture truth and a fundamental doctrine of several churches, it must never be looked upon as the sum and substance of the Reformed faith. As Dr. Kuiper has said, it is a mistake to discover the specific character of Calvinism in the doctrine of predestination or in the authority of Scripture. For Calvinism, all these are logical consequences, not the point of departure. Foliage bearing witness to the luxuriousness of its growth, but not the root from which it is sprouted. If the doctrine is detached from its natural association with other truths and exhibited alone, the effect is exaggerated. The system is then distorted and misrepresented. A statement of any principle in order to be true must present it in harmony with all the other elements of the system of which it forms a part. The Westminster Confession of Faith is a balanced statement of the system as a whole and it gives due prominence to those other doctrines such as the Trinity, the Deity of Christ, the Personality of the Holy Spirit, the Inspiration of the Scriptures, Miracles, the Atonement, Resurrection, the Personal Return of Christ, and so forth. Furthermore, we do not deny that the Armenians hold many and important truths 
but we do hold that a full and complete exposition of the Christian system can be given only on the basis of the truth as set forth in the Calvinistic system. In the minds of most people, the doctrine of predestination and Calvinism are practically synonymous terms. This, however, should not be the case, and the too close identification of the two has doubtless done much to prejudice many people against the Calvinistic system. The same is true in regard to a too close identification of Calvinism and the five points, as will be shown later. While predestination and the five points are all essential elements of Calvinism, they by no means constitute its whole. The doctrine of predestination has been made the subject of almost endless discussion, much of which, it must be admitted, was for the purpose of softening its outlines or of explaining it away. The consideration of this great doctrine, says Cunningham, runs up into the most profound and inaccessible subjects that can occupy the minds of men. The nature and attributes, the purposes and the actings of the infinite and incomprehensible Jehovah, viewed especially in their beings upon the everlasting destinies of his intelligent creatures. The peculiar nature of the subject certainly demands in right reason that it should ever be approached and considered with the profoundest humility, caution, and reverence, as it brings us into contact on the one side with a subject so awful and overwhelming as the everlasting misery of an innumerable multitude of our fellow men. Many men have discussed the subject in this spirit, but many also have indulged in much presumptions and irreverent speculation regarding it. There is probably no subject that has occupied more of the attention of intelligent men in every age. It has been most fully discussed in all its bearings, philosophical, theological, and practical. And if there be any subject of speculation with respect to which we are warranted in saying that it has been exhausted, it is this. Some at least of the topics comprehended under this general head have been discussed by almost every philosopher of eminence in ancient as well as in modern times. All that the highest ability, ingenuity, and acuteness can effect has been brought to bear upon the discussion of this subject, and the difficulties attaching to it have never been fully solved, and we are well warranted in saying that they never will, unless God gives us either a fuller revelation or greatly enlarged capacities. Although perhaps it would be more correct to say that from the very nature of the case a finite being can never fully comprehend it since this would imply that he could fully comprehend the infinite mind. In the development of this book, much use has been made of other books in order that this one may contain the very cream and quiescence of the best authors on the subject. Consequently, many of the arguments found here are from men very superior to the present writer. Indeed, when he glances at the whole, he is inclined to say with a celebrated French writer, I have culled a bouquet of varied flowers from men's gardens, and nothing in my own but the string that binds them. Yet much is his own, especially in regards to the organization and arrangement of materials. Throughout this book, the terms predestination and foreordination 
are used as exact synonyms, the choice being determined only by taste. If a distinction be desired, the word foreordination can perhaps better be used where the thing spoken of is an event in history or in nature, while predestination can refer mainly to the final destiny of persons. The scripture quotations have been made from the American Standard Version of the Bible rather than from the King James Version, since the former is more accurate. The author wishes particularly to thank Dr. Samuel G. Craig, editor of Christianity Today, Dr. Frank H. Stevenson, president of the Board of Trustees of Westminster Theological Seminary, Dr. Cornelius Van Til, professor of apologetics in Westminster Theological Seminary, Dr. C.W. Hodge, professor of systematic theology in Princeton's Theological Seminary, under whose supervision this material is much shorter form was originally prepared, and Reverend Henry Atherton, General Secretary of the Sovereign Grace Union, London, England, for valuable assistance. This book, we repeat, is designed to set forth and defend the Reformed faith, commonly known as Calvinism. It is not directed against any particular denomination, but against Arminianism in general. The author is a Presbyterian. Footnote. The author, a layman, is a member of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. This is one of the smaller denominations, but one that seeks faithfully to maintain the Reformed heritage. And the footnote. But he is well aware of the radical departure that the rank and file of Presbyterians have made from their own creed. The book is sent forth with the hope that those who profess to hold the Reformed faith may have a better understanding of the great truths which are here treated and may value their heritage more highly, and that those who have not known the system or who have opposed it may be convinced of its truth and come to love it. The question which faces us then is, has God from all eternity foreordained all things which come to pass? If so, what evidence do we have to that effect, and how is the fact consistent with the free agency of rational creatures and with his own perfections. Section 1. Statement of the Doctrine Chapter 2, page 13. Statement of the Doctrine In the Westminster Confession of Faith, which sets forth the beliefs of the Presbyterian and Reformed churches, and which is the most perfect expression of the Reformed faith, we read, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. And further, although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, Yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future, or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. This doctrine of predestination represents the purpose of God as absolute and unconditional, independent of the whole finite creation, and as originating solely in the eternal counsel of his will. God is seen as the great and mighty King, who has appointed the course of nature, and who directs the course of history even down to its minutest details. His decree is eternal, unchangeable, holy, wise, 
and sovereign. It, was, it extends not merely to the course of the physical world, but to every event in human history, from the creation to the judgment, and includes all the activities of saints and angels in heaven and of reprobates and demons in hell. It embraces the whole scope of creaturality, existence through time and eternity, comprehending at once all things that ever were or will be in their causes, conditions, successions, and relations. Everything outside of God himself is included in this all-embracing decree, and that very naturally, since all other things owe their existence and continuance in existence to his creative and sustaining power. It provides a providential control under which all things are hastening to the end of God's determining and the goal of far-off divine event toward which the whole creation moves. Since the finite creation through its whole range exists as a medium through which God manifests his glory and since it is absolutely dependent on him, it of itself could originate no conditions which would limit or defeat the manifestation of that glory. From all eternity, God has purposed to do just exactly what he is doing. He is the sovereign ruler of the universe and does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Daniel 4.35 Since the universe had its origin in God and depends on him for its continued existence, it must be in all its parts and at all times subject to his control so that nothing can come to pass contrary to what he expressly decrees or permits. Thus the eternal purpose is represented as an act of sovereign predestination or foreordination and unconditioned by any subsequent fact or change in time. Hence it is represented as being the basis of the divine foreknowledge of all future events and not conditioned by that foreknowledge or by anything originated by the events themselves. The Reformed theologians logically and consistently apply to the spheres of creation and providence those great principles which were later set forth in the Westminster Standards. They saw the hand of God in every event in all the history of mankind and in all the workings of physical nature, so that the world was the complete realization in time of the eternal ideal. The world as a whole and in all its parts and movements and changes was brought into a unity by the governing, all-pervading, all-harmonizing activity of the divine will, and its purpose was to manifest the divine glory. While their conception was that of divine ordering of the whole course of history to the various detail, they were especially concerned with its relation to man's salvation. Calvin, the brilliant and systematic theologian of the Reformation, put the matter thus, Predestination we call the eternal decree of God, by which he has determined in himself what he would have to become of every individual of mankind. For they are not all created with a similar destiny, but eternal life is foreordained for some and eternal death for others. Every man therefore being created for one or the other of these ends, we say he is predestinated either to life or to death. Luther was as zealous for absolute predestination as was Calvin, is shown in his 
commentary on Romans where he wrote, All things whatsoever arise from and depend on the divine appointment whereby it was foreordained who should receive the word of life and who should disbelieve it, who should be delivered from their sins and who should be hardened in them, and who should be justified and who should be condemned. And Melanchthon, his close friend and fellow laborer, says, All things turn out according to divine predestination, not only the works we do outwardly, but even the thoughts we think inwardly. And again, there is no such thing as chance or fortune, nor is there a readier way to gain the fear of God and to put our whole trust in Him than to be thoroughly versed in the doctrine of predestination. Order is heaven's first law. From the divine viewpoint there is unbroken order in progress from the first beginnings of the creation to the end of the world and the ushering in of the kingdom of heaven in all its glory. The divine purpose and plan is nowhere defeated nor interrupted. That which in many cases appears to be to us defeat is not really such but only appears to be because our finite and imperfect nature does not permit us to see all the parts in the whole nor the whole in all its parts. If at one glance we could take in the mighty spectacle of the natural world and the complex drama of human history we should see the world as one harmonious unit manifesting the glorious perfections of God. Though the world seems to run at random, says Bishop, and affairs to be huddled together in blind confusion and rude disorder, yet God sees and knows the concatenation of all causes and effects, and so governs them that he makes a perfect harmony out of all those seeming jarrings and discords. It is most necessary that we should have our hearts well established in the firm and unwavering belief of this truth that whatsoever comes to pass, be it good or evil, we may look up to the hand and disposal of all to God. In respect of God, there is nothing casual nor contingent in the world. If a master should send a servant to a certain place and command him to stay there till such a time, and presently after should send another servant to the same place, the meeting of these two is wholly casual in respect to themselves, but ordained and foreseen by the master who sent them. They fell out unexpectedly as to us, but not so as to God. He foresees and he appoints all the vicissitudes of things. The psalmist exclaimed, O Jehovah our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. And the writer of Ecclesiastes says, he hath made everything beautiful in its time. In the vision which the prophet Isaiah saw, the seraphim sing, Holy, holy, holy is Jehovah of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. When seen from this divine viewpoint, every event in the course of human affairs, in all ages and in all nations, has, no matter how insignificant it may appear to us, its exact place in the development of the eternal plan. It has relations with preceding causes and exerts an ever-widening influence through its effects so that it is related to the whole system of things and has its individual part in maintaining the perfect equilibrium of this world order. Many instances might be given to show that events of the greatest importance 
have often depended upon what at the time appeared to be the most fortuitous and trivial events. The interrelation and connection of events is such that if one of these were to be omitted or modified, all the follows would soon be modified or prevented. Hence the certainty that the divine administration rests on the foreordination of God extending to all events, both great and small. And strictly speaking, no event is really small. Each one has its exact place in the divine plan, and some are only relatively greater than others. The course of history, then, is infinitely complex, yet a unit in the sight of God. This truth, together with the reason for it, is very beautifully summed up in the Shorter Catechism, which states that the decrees of God are His eternal purpose, according to the counsel of His will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Dr. Abraham Kuyper of Holland, who is recognized as one of the outstanding Calvinistic theologians in recent years, has given us some valuable thought in the following paragraph. The determination of the existence of all things to be created, or what is to be camellia or buttercup, nightingale or crow, heart or swine, and equally among men, the determination of our own persons, whether one is to be born as a boy or girl, rich or poor, dull or clever, white or colored, or even as Abel and Cain, is the most tremendous predestination conceivable in history or on earth. And still we see it taking place before our eyes every day, and we ourselves are subject to it in our entire personality. Our entire existence our very nature, our position in life being entirely dependent on it. This all-embracing predestination that Calvinist places not in the hands of man and still less in the hands of blind natural force, but in the hand of Almighty God, sovereign creator and possessor of heaven and earth. And it is in the figure of the potter in the clay that scripture has from the time of the prophets expounded to us this all-dominating election election in creation, election in providence, and so election also to eternal life, election in the realm of grace as well as in the realm of nature. We can have no adequate appreciation of this world order until we see it as one mighty system through which God is working out his plan. Calvin's clear and consistent theism gave him a keen sense of the infinite majesty of the almighty person in whose hands all things lay, and made him a very pronounced predestinarian. In this doctrine of the unconditional and eternal purpose of the omniscient and omnipotent God, he found the program of the history of the fall and redemption of the human race. He ventured boldly but reverently upon the brink of that abyss of speculation where all human knowledge is lost in mystery and adoration. The Reformed faith then offers us a great God who is really sovereign ruler of the universe. Its grand principle, says Bain, is the contemplation of the universe of God revealed in Christ. In all places, in all times, from eternity to eternity, Calvinism sees God. Our age, with its emphasis on democracy, doesn't like this view, and perhaps no other age liked it less. The tendency today is to exalt man and to give God only a very limited part in the affairs of the world. As Dr. A. A. Hodge has said, 
the new theology asserting the narrowness of the old is discarding the foreordination of Jehovah as a worn-out figment of the schools discredited by the advanced culture of today. This is not the first time that the owls, mistaking the shadow of the passing eclipse for their native night, have prematurely hooted at the eagles, convinced that what is invisible to them cannot possibly exist. This in general is the broad conception of predestination as it has been held by the great theologians of the Presbyterian and Reformed churches. Foreordination is explicitly stated in Scripture. Acts 4:27 and 28 says, For of the truth in this city against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou stid anoint both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, were gathered together to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel foreordained to come to pass. Ephesians 1:5 says, Having foreordained us unto adoption as sons through Jesus Christ unto himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Ephesians 1.11 says, In whom also we were made a heritage, having been foreordained according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his will. Romans 8.29 and 30 says, For whom he foreknew he also foreordained to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. In whom he foreordained them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. 1 Corinthians 2.7 says, But we speak God's wisdom in the mystery, even the wisdom that hath been hidden, which God foreordained before the world unto our glory. Acts 2.23 says, Him, Jesus, being delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, he by the hands of lawless men did crucify and slay. Acts 13.48 says, And as the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of God, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God afore prepared that we should walk in them. Romans 9.23 says, That he might make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy which he afore prepared unto glory. Psalm 139.16 says, Thine eyes did see mine unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written, even the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was none of them. Chapter 3, page 20, God Has a Plan. It is unthinkable that God of infinite wisdom and power would create a world without a definite plan for that world. And because God is thus infinite, his plan must extend to every detail of the world's existence. If we could see the world in all its relations, past, present, and future, we would see that it is following a predetermined course with exact precision. Among created things, we may search where we will as far as the microscope and the telescope will enable the eye to see, we find organization everywhere. Large forms resolve themselves into parts, and these parts, in their turn, are but organized or other parts down as far as we can see into infinity. Even man, who is but the creature of a day and subject to all kinds of errors, develops a plan before he acts 
and a man who acts without design or purpose is accounted foolish. Before we make a trip or undertake a piece of work, all of us set our goal, and then work to attain that goal, in so far as we are able. Regardless of how some people may oppose predestination and theory, all of us in our everyday lives are practical predestinarians. As E.W. Smith says, a wise man first determines upon the end he desires to attain, and then upon the best means of attaining it. Before the architect begins his edifice, he makes his drawings and forms his plans, even to the minutest details of construction. In the architect's brain, the building stands complete in all its parts before a stone is laid. So with the merchant, the lawyer, the farmer, and all rational and intelligent men, their activity is along the line of previously formed purposes, the fulfillment so far as their finite capacities will allow of preconceived plans. The larger our enterprise is, the more important it is that we shall have a plan, otherwise all our work ends in failure. One would be considered mentally deranged who undertook to build a ship or a railroad or to govern a nation without a plan. We are told that before Napoleon began the invasion of Russia, he had a plan worked out in detail, showing what line of march each division of his army was to follow, where it was to be at a certain time, what equipment and provisions it was to have, etc. Whatever was wanting in this plan was due to the limitations of human power and wisdom. Had Napoleon's foresight been perfect, his control of events, absolute, his plan, or we may say, his foreordination, would have extended to every act of every soldier who made that march. And if this is true of men, how much more is it true of God? A universe without decree, says A.J. Gordon, would be as irrational and appalling as would be an express train driving on in darkness without headlight or engineer and with no certainty that the next moment it might not plunge into the abyss. We cannot conceive of God bringing into existence a universe without a plan which would extend to all that would be done in that universe. As the scriptures teach that God's provisional control extends to all events, even the most minute, they thereby teach that his plan is equally comprehensive. It is one of his perfections that he has the best possible plan and that he conducts the course of history to its appointed end. And to admit that he has a plan which he carries out is to admit predestination. God's plan is shown in its effectuation to be one, says Dabney. Cause is linked with effect, and what was effect becomes cause. The influences of events on events interlace with each other and descend in widening streams to subsequent events, so that the whole complex result is interlaced through every part. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, 
containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.